Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Hello there, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Sessions. And today we have an international in the house. Can we say that? Woohoo! We've got Rudena Abdo of Thaki. Rudena, welcome to the show. Hello, Nada. Thank you so much for having me. My favorite part of um, talking to you is that you say my name perfectly. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's like it's like all the members of my family. Um, I, I can hear it. you're you're making me feel like at home. Um, well, welcome. We're glad to have you. We're excited to kind of get into the meat of not only your story, but a better understanding for those of us who are either running nonprofits or are interested in associating ourselves with a nonprofit. Um, I think you're going to shed some some light on it. So. Thanks again for making time for us all the way from the Netherlands. Welcome. Um, can you share with our listeners a little bit about Thaki and um, kind of what, what this organization is? Sure, I would love to do that. I love talking about Thaki. Uh, <laughs> Thaki is a nonprofit um, that I started three years ago, uh, coming out of, stemming out of the crisis that was happening in, um, in Syria and the Middle East with the whole refugee issue just becoming so so drastic, uh, re- really reaching peak level. Um, and what we do is uh, get donated computers from corporations, institutions, and we deliver digital literacy and education through technology. Uh, so at the time when I started this, I was living in Abu Dhabi, in a totally different career, by the way. So I've made a, a pivot in my career after 25 years. Um, but, uh, and I'm a mother and I'm an urban planner, so it's not, I don't come from field of technology or education. Um, but seeing how my kids learn and how I am addicted to technology and learning and hearing the just totally heart wrenching crisis that was going on in the Middle East, so close to us, um, you know, I have a, a refugee background myself, and seeing how many millions of children, uh, literally it's millions of children that we're talking about, and it's um, hundreds of thousands, half a million children in Lebanon, uh, Syrian refugees at the time, who were out of school entirely, uh, and just this whole inequity and um, the, the situation just was really gutting me. I was just... Uh, couldn't deal with it anymore, I guess. Yeah. And I felt I had to uh, do something in a white space, something positive. And I got this idea, which uh, seemed like a no-brainer to me. I felt surely this is happening um, to get assets from one entity and hand them over to another entity, things that are not needed. Corporations have laptops that they retire all the time. So that's what uh, that's what triggered this thought, is to get these laptops that are technology that's not being used by their original user, repurpose them and um, repurpose them with content, with motivational content. Actually, we're very picky on the content that we put mm-hmm. on the laptops and get them to children who are otherwise not getting an education. 
But, you know, through this process, it wasn't just education. Uh, I've come to see that it's not just the education that's critical for them to be receiving, which absolutely it is. It's a human right. Everybody should have access to education. But it's also digital literacy, being uh, becoming digital natives, having the ease and comfort of navigating computer systems, of being able to web search, of being able to do spreadsheets and word processing and all of these things that we take for granted. These kids will never touch a computer otherwise. Um, so we, I wanted to be able to do something about that. So it seems to me it's, it's not just leveling the playing field with education, but it's actually giving them opportunity um, through digital literacy. If, they can, if that's something that is a part of their life, then they can change their own circumstances and they can create infrastructure within their own country that wouldn't otherwise be there. Exactly. I mean, now every, everybody's talking about AI automation. We're moving towards that in all aspects, whether it's in, in everything from transportation to what have you. And this automation is also going to be taking away um, manual labor. And these children are probably otherwise destined only for manual labor, and that wouldn't even yeah. be there. So their economic yeah. uh, prospects are entirely gone without having, uh, in, in any case, so they, they have to... They have to have these skills in order to have a chance for a future. That's amazing. I, I want to tell our listeners that I'm pronouncing it Thaki, which is, it's incorrect. It's actually Thaki, right? Yeah. Can I, uh, let me explain the, the name. Yeah. But I, let me just spell oh, it for them so they can go on. So it's T-H-A-K-I, correct? Correct. Yes. And that's um, .org? Correct. Okay, fantastic. So we can, and we'll make sure those are in the show notes. But tell us then, yeah, what's the behind the name? Uh, we actually had a, a brainstorming a session with my cousin's design firm, Polypod in Lebanon, and uh, came up with this with the team in, in 45 minutes. Uh, Veki in Arabic means smart, but we're yes. playing on the, the phonetic sound of the key. And the tagline is ah. giving, giving children the key to unlock their potential. And you'll see. That's brilliant. <laughs> I love that. Okay, now we're never going to forget it. So you we're have to look at the, you have the to see the logo as well. So that explains okay, it too. Okay, okay, yes. <laughs> and while we're talking about your cousin in Lebanon, tell us a little bit, and you hinted at this, but what is your own refugee story? You said that sort of this whole thing is informed a little bit by your own experience. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that experience? Sure. Uh, historically, my parents are Palestinian. So in 48, they had to flee Palestine and they settled in Lebanon. Um, and the, the diaspora went all over, but there was a lot of settlement of Palestinians in Lebanon. Um, and due to circumstances, which also actually very much influenced why I started Deki, uh, to circumstance of religion, quite honestly, they were granted mm -hmm. citizenship, Lebanese citizenship. And with that citizenship came all the rights with that. They, they were able to become educated, get um, have economic prosperity and become contributors to society, just as normal, um, thriving, middle-class members of society. And then we gave us the opportunities to move on. So that was the first generation of my family. And then um, in Lebanon in 76, um, the long and nasty civil war started and uh, we were living there at the time. Uh, and uh, probably about a year into the war, it's got uh, quite heavy, uh, intense in our area. And uh, we fled, our, our, actually our house was bombed and uh, we fled quite dramatically, <laughs> um, mm. went to a safer area along the coast, um, and then we 
took a speedboat to uh, to Cyprus and uh, waited. I think it was maybe about two months. I can't really remember the timeline. And my parents realized that the war was not getting any better because the intention was it'll get better and then we go back to Lebanon. That didn't happen. So uh, schools were going to start. It was the summer and my parents were getting very anxious about getting us back into school, um, picking up the business again, getting work going. Uh, so we moved to Greece uh, again, thinking that would be just a temporary situation. And then, sure. and that was it. We never lived in Lebanon after that. Wow. Because it was another, four, it was another 14 years before the civil war ended. And, and was your intention as you sought out doing something in this particular space of technology and with children, was it any refugee group? Was it this particular refugee group? Was it getting back to Lebanon? What was the what was it for you that compelled you? It, it the rea- the immediate reaction and what was what my gut was really uh, responding to was all the news that we were hearing about Syria and the displacement that was happening in Syria. But really, that does not diminish what's happening in Yemen and what the Lebanese population themselves and the Palestinians who've been there and any displaced, any, any vulnerable child, quite honestly. So it's it, the, the initial focus started on refugee children, but it's really refugee and vulnerable children. Mm-hmm. And sadly, there is just absolutely no shortage of them. And um, with the 68 million glo- refugees globally, unfortunately, a large uh, portion proportion are in the Middle East. It has its unfair uh, share of uh, displaced people. Um, so I started. I, I was thinking. I let me start looking at Jordan and Greece because they were uh, to uh, Jordan and Lebanon. Actually, excuse me. Uh, so I started making a trips to Lebanon um, because of my own connection there, and I've got cousins there, so I had a place to stay every time I would go. And I just started making trips to with with no knowledge and no networking and no not knowing who's doing what, um, and just being introduced and probing around and going to uh, meeting people who were stepping into this field themselves, people in education, um, some incredible incredible people that I've met along the way, and um, I have to say that the vast probably ninety eight percent of them are women. Uh, who are stepping into wow. to, into this arena to to help children primarily uh, with education in traditional and non-traditional ways. There's a lot of entre- entrepreneurship that I'm seeing on the ground, and Lebanon is is really creative actually, and people with with very very modest means as well, just doing remarkable work and just leaving everything and all security behind, all financial security. To, to do what they feel they're compelled to do. And so these are the incredible people that I work with. Um, uh, so it's just been so heart-opening, this whole experience, yeah. really humbling. It's, it sounds incredible. And I can only imagine the collection of stories um, that you are compiling. Every single woman, every single child, mm-hmm. you know, the mothers of these children that you are educating, essentially. And then teaching the the mothers and the parents how to access the technology as well so they can understand it, so it's not this foreign object. Um, And then the tension that must come from that, you know, they're excited that their children are getting this this edge, 
um, being educated in this way and um, gaining this knowledge, but then also the how vulnerable it makes the parent if it's something that they don't understand. So mm-hmm. it seems like there's so much opportunity for you to connect the dots with these um, these groups of people through technology. Yeah, actually, you hit on a very important point, which at first I thought, okay, we'll, we'll put these computers and we have an, an offline solution. Internet in Lebanon is, is, is awful. It's very expensive and it's uh, extremely low speed. So it's not reliable for streaming. And so there's so much, so much rich educational content that is online. Uh, but offline uh, resources are a bit more scarce. So we have been sourcing different programs and different uh, content, some very good stuff actually, um, geared towards independent learning and interactive learning uh, and putting them on the machines. And then at first I thought, okay, great, the kids will start learning, the teachers will show them. And then the realization that the teachers themselves are very uncomfortable in this digital environment. So then that became a new obsession of mine in the last year to see how we can get them to become comfortable and understand um, so that they're not intimidated by the technology and therefore they would close that off to the children. And we've uh, been working, we've just developed a series of um, tutorials, actually, video tutorials to to show them what's what's on there, how they can utilize them. It's it's all in Arabic and it's... uh, So I'm I'm excited about that, actually. (laughs) This is something that's that's, uh, fairly new. Um, I love that you've been able to identify where the need is and just accommodate mm-hmm. that when you are, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about kind of where you are in your process, but when you are a smaller organization that you have flexibility that perhaps some other organizations don't have, and then you can sort of perfect the process mm-hmm. um, or at least get close. <laughs> um, okay. So all of this sounds like uh, well, this this woman I'm listening to was a refugee herself, and she's doing this incredible work um, with technology and in these very um, sort of crazy circumstances that she's going into these refugee these places, these these countries and and particular cities and towns and villages where these refugees exist and able to connect with them. Um, what kind of background does one have? Uh, to be able to put something like this together. You mentioned earlier you were an urban planner. Mm-hmm. So how do how do we connect the dots? What did urban planning have to do with what you're doing now? And yeah, answer that. Sure. Well, it's, yeah, my career, my career, my entire career, almost 25 years has been, well, started off in architecture, but urban planning really, and working internationally in private, public, private, and nonprofit sectors. So, um, I've worked in, in North America, in Europe, in the Middle East. Um, so the last 10 years have been on big, massive city building projects and large infrastructure transportation projects in the Middle East. So I think this uh, and urban planning is uh, is the extreme opposite scale, I would say, to what I'm doing right now. So we would be working on the 2050 plan, 2030 plan. So the long term things and you're planning for massive infrastructure and all of the social and the various components for building cities and at this large time span but I think what I've the things I would say the the working internationally and living internationally has really I think heightened my contextual sensitivity in dealing with people and understanding different circumstances different um, cultures different ways um, because I, I, I bring this I think I, this has helped me in, in entering this ecosystem as well 
yes, I am Arab and I was a refugee, but my circumstances are nothing like the circumstances of the people that I'm working in now. Um, and the work that I'm doing now also is I'm, I'm bridging um, the corporates and the technology companies in the West and in North America and Europe uh, with the what's happening on the ground with the people who are actually delivering and working with the children and and dealing in the nitty-gritty uh, daily um, functions. So I'm very comfortable in bridging these two different scenarios. Mm. And I think, the again, the planning is the understanding the full process. I had... Uh, I... Um, I'm detail-oriented in my thinking, and I build up all of these scenarios to the greatest level of detail, and I understand them. Uh, so I, I think, actually, a huge shift that I, from what I was doing before as an urban planner, is that you write all of these documentation and process, 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 and write massive reports, and you have to be concise and precise and, and easy to read, but you also write these big documents which may end up as shelf projects these are long-term projects and this is anything but this is nimble agile do see what happens see what works so it's actually very refreshing for me to be stepping away into this do see act react mode which uh, um, you have to wait for years <laughs> the planning context in which to do that so I think um, it's but but however having that understanding of the whole picture for me is important, um, but moving quickly as well, um, with with confidence though, not just quickly with um, blindly, but quickly with with some reference, with some strong reference points, is important. And that all that sort of detail-minded um, part of you gets to to flush some of these scenarios out, even in your uh, do see, act, and react um, world, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I love. I think that's, um, for many of us, that's where we find ourselves in, in these early years. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll adopt that. I'm sure we'll make that a, a quote from you. You'll <laughs> see it on our Instagram. Um, did now, now you're talking about your more corporate kind of urban planning life that you came from and then the need you saw to create an impact um, amongst refugee children. This is a very sort of entrepreneurial endeavor. Is that something that you were seeking out in addition to answering what sounds like kind of a call to serve this population? Did you at some point have an itch to be an entrepreneur and to kind of do your own thing? Or was this born more of, that's not a comfortable thing for me, but I really want to do this. So I guess I'll step into that entrepreneurial role. No, it's. I've always had the. I've always had the inclination, but it took me decades to get there. And and actually, while this was happening, um, I was doing this uh, amazing program in Amsterdam, uh, Think program on on entrepreneurial leadership, and uh, so it was all very fresh, very new kind of thinking. It's a very transformative kind of a, a program, and I was definitely soul searching as well. I had reached uh, a point in my career. I was. Um, I, I just wasn't getting the satisfaction that I, I needed. And it, I, it, I felt it had to be something in, in the philanthropic world that I needed to do. I've always had that leaning, even as a child. Um, I've always had uh, philanthropic leanings, but I felt this time that it had to be more direct and um, just more direct with that I would pour my full self into, not my after-hour self into, which is what I sure. was doing before. So yeah, I think that um, it, it was there, it was waiting to happen. But then um, 
but when I got this idea for for Zeki, and it actually was a moment. It was a moment. I was. It was a moment when I was riding my stationary exercise bike and um, watching a TED talk um, by Melissa Fleming on a Syrian refugee boy who took his high school certificate. That is when the moment struck. And I realized later, I mean, I've, I've come to the realization that there were other things that were bubbling, but it was a moment when I thought, how many devices do we have in this household of ours with four people, electronic devices that are fully functional, not being utilized to their um, to their extreme. And I'm always on my kids to get off the screen and enough screen time. And yet they come back and tell me all of this, explain all these macroeconomics theories to me and things that... I don't even understand because they read watch them on YouTube or something like that. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's when it just clicked for me. And it's really I remember I could very clearly remember that moment in December when I had the I can, I can there is an opportunity there and I need to do it. And and by the way, not only did you watch a TED Talk which inspired you, but you yourself have a TED Talk. So we'll we'll make sure that that's in the show notes too so our listeners can can click through and it's a great um, kind of short, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just a, a very digestible way to understand exactly what you're doing and kind of um, what inspired and informed you to move forward with this organization. So uh, we'll make sure that they have access to that. Um, n- now that you are fully fledged in your entrepreneurial endeavor and you are, how many years in are you? Just a little over three years. Three and a half, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you know what you're in for. You've learned from the last three years. Um, When you look back, what has been the hardest part of kind of starting up, getting this whole thing off the ground? And then now that you're a little bit more established, what's the hardest part of just continuing the day to day and, and the running of the business? I think at the startup phase, the hardest part was I knew what I wanted to do, but I had no idea if it was even doable um, because I always had scale in mind and I knew that I would want to be building these computer systems that have tons of amazing stuff on them. Um, but how do you do that? How do you replicate that? How do you put install the systems? How do you get the operating system? I knew nothing. I didn't even know what Linux was. I know much more about Linux these days. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So it was, uh, uh, I think in a way it was probably a good thing that I had all this ignorance because um, I started reaching out to friends and people started hearing what I had in mind and I pitched my my kids' school, actually. That was my first pitch where I was extremely nervous. I was pitching them for um, their old laptops um, and the principal invited the head of IT, the IT director, to the meeting and uh, he said, well, I love what you're doing. Can I join your team? <laughs> Can I help? And I said, oh, my goodness. Ah. And he, he came, it comes from the California public school system. This was in Abu Dhabi, uh, where he's dealt with, I think, 40,000 uh, children. So he knows scale. Yeah. He knows uh, how to deal with um, technology at a large scale. And every morning at drop-off, over the course of a year, I would go into his office and I'd get to 20 minutes. I'd ask him all kinds of questions to understand how, how things would work and I, th- I think I got a little computer science degree <laughs> over the course of the year of going oh. in. And uh, so I re- it was a huge learning. It, it, it is, not was. It still is a huge learning um, system for me to understand about the technology because I, I need to understand the systems. I've gone through all of the systems myself um, on the imaging and I, I get in there with the technology people, even the tech guys, even though I don't know 
what's what's going on but you know by observing is start to learn and I don't want to be doing it in the long run myself but I do have to understand each of these processes sure. So it, I think at first it was, okay, I know what I want to do, but how the heck do I do it? And then it was, um, okay, now we need the donated laptops. <laughs> how, yeah. how easy is it going to get that? And that's where I started just blindly pitching and get asking for connections with um, executives in, in large corporations mostly. Um, and I would, are you emailing them? Are you writing them letters? Are you sending flowers? How are you getting in those <laughs> no, doors? No budget for flowers. <laughs> <laughs> um, by email, it was uh, predominantly okay. by email. And some of them were even blind calls just on the, on online. And I think it, the, the response was really quite uh, very, very warm, very, um, very resonant. And when I got to the actual meeting stage, then it was always very positive. And I even had a couple of companies change their large international corporations. This was in the, in the UAE. They changed their policies so that they can direct their, um, their laptops to us. So it, it's that what I thought would be the hardest thing back then turned out to be not so hard at all. Uh, and then things changed in the UAE where we, could, we couldn't do that anymore. I hope that we can do that again. Um, reasons that are too complicated to go into now. Uh, so all, throughout there have been different challenges. So while at first it was not the challenge was not to get laptops, it is my, my challenge now. We've moved to the Netherlands and we've been here for a little over a year, a year and a half. And it's been a closed market for me so far. It's been really hard to break into this market, but um, huh. I'm determined. I'm, I don't take no for an answer on things like that. I have no <laughs> doubt. I, no, I pity the fool who says no to you. I, but, you're just going to come after them harder and stronger. Or, or different ways. And now that we actually have 501c3 designation under another partner organization of ours, this opens up the North American market for us which I want sure. to start uh, getting into. So right now it is, um, our demand is for um, about 2,500 laptops in Lebanon. And I'm wow. sure these numbers, numbers will grow, but they will also, there's a cost involved as well as part of the business model, which I, I can't get, I, I want, we don't have time to get into that now either. But <laughs> as, if we can get the, the larger the volumes, I think the low, the more accessible it would be, the easier it would be to get um, to, to the need, and we, we want to scale. I just the, Lebanon. This is the immediate demand of the partners. It's about or, over forty organizations in Lebanon that have received devices from us, and there are others that are waiting. But really, I want to bring this model to um, to Jordan, to Greece, hopefully within Syria itself. Pal I mean, the region across yeah. the region. That's amazing. You, you said you don't want to get into the model, and and th that's fine. I think. Um, but I would like our listeners to just understand. So most of the, so so all of the devices are donated. Mm -hmm. So that, and then you have to upload all this um, content onto those. So there's a cost in creating the content and uploading the content. Um, and then in literally shipping them, getting them to uh, the end user. Yes. So there's a cost involved there. Yes. Then there's different people that are, um, aside from you that are participating in the, you know, on your team, whether it's for administrative stuff or fundraising stuff or, um, building the technology, creating the technology. How do you, um, fund that portion? Is it, are you raising money through, you know, individuals who are on board and see the vision and this is sort of their philanthropic 
uh, they feel like it's their philanthropic call or duty. What is the, how are you subsidizing that? Just for our listeners who are trying to understand if they're pursuing a nonprofit or have their own nonprofit, it's always good to have a little sense of what that model is. Okay. Uh, it started by me. I had a, a designated amount that I was willing to put in from my savings. It wasn't, it was quite a modest amount actually. Um, so I used that and it, I, I needed that for travel essentially for my direct expenses, uh, mostly travel, plane tickets, things like that. Um, lit on little else, our technology doesn't need much. Um, and there are two parts to this, actually. There is the, the financial part and there is the in-kind contribution part. And I think I've, I've been quite, quite successful at, at leveraging the in-kind contributions, which are huge. I mean, they are tremendously sure. valuable. Um, uh, there's so much, and you'll see the, the partners listed on our website under strategic partners. But we've had, um, the website was done pro bono. Um, the um, the legal all of the legal advice I get, which is from this amazing uh, Lebanese lawyer, is pro bono, and getting registered in Lebanon by the lawyers uh, pro bono. The the graphics, the design that was pro bono, and a lot of the team members are volunteer. Um, so you can actually get very far on the pro bono aspect. Um, it as uh, so because I needed expertise as well, spe- specialized sure. expertise. And then, sure. yes, and then it gets to the point where people are putting hundreds of hours in and you need um, a soft person to do that kind of work and you need it to be at a sustained level. Um, so that the, the funding there came from, I've had um, a couple of grants and there have been some uh, generous gifts from individuals. Um, and then as far as, at first, I was paying the shipping, <laughs> which is yeah. definitely not sustainable to pay shipments yeah. that were going from Abu Dhabi to, to Lebanon. Then I started charging the recipient organizations um, the shipping costs um, and then started charging a, mod- a very modest value, $7 a laptop uh, plus shipping costs. And now it's at the stage where it's $40 a laptop which includes everything. It includes the shipping costs and it covers a very small amount of our um, operating expenses. But at scale, this $40 a laptop will go much further than it is right now. Um, but I really would like to bring that $40 a laptop down, even though it's the value of, of content, proprietary content on the computers that they get is, uh, is in close to $2,000 actually, because a lot of the, the donors of the, um, the content uh, sell this, their products, but they give it to us because of the users that we're reaching. Um, so yeah, but it just hurts me to have to charge that fee yes, to the recipients. Yes, because you have those partners, it's a smart way for you to leverage their raising money. They're, they're funded by individuals or grants or whatever themselves, and they're able to satisfy whatever their mission is through the work that you're doing. So Yes, of course. In an ideal situation, it would be great to drop those prices. But if you can't, then you don't exist. Yes. And the goal is to get you to exist and then get to that opportunity or that place where scaling is truly an option so that you can satisfy the greater need. Mm -hmm. And I think it's – thank you for sharing that because I think a lot of people are – as they think through the process, they think, no, how can we – how can we do this? They they remove the partner's. Um, from the equation, which I think are key. It's important to have partners in place. I usually use the anecdote when I'm talking to nonprofits of, you know, if you think of Tom's shoes, everybody thinks that 
Blake himself is like running around the world dropping shoes um, everywhere, and that's not what's happening. There are partners all over the world who are receiving those shoes, who are distributing those shoes, who are telling them what the need is, who um, are themselves raising money and funds so that they can work together um, to, to make sure that this is happening. And if you know, if you don't want to reinvent the wheel, but you really want to satisfy something in, uh, that's meaningful, it's really important, I think, to identify those partners and work with them and figure out what your role is in that kind of bigger plan or that bigger uh, mechanism. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you've done that very smartly. Yeah, and I think for it's a, it's really important to stay close to these partners, the recipient partners, which I'm able to do now. I mean, I'm very um, tied in with them, and I want to I want to keep that. I, the operations I want to hand over, but to have this connection to those on the ground to understand the needs, um, as well as the global connections, um, where I'm the the link really between those two yeah. worlds, I think is critical for me. Uh, because then, mm -hmm. and then we know, then I know what to go after, what other kinds of educational products to seek as well. Sure. And really play more of a visionary role and um, expanding what you can do and who you can impact. So let's talk a little bit more about that piece of it, sort of getting you, uh, getting the juice out of all of um, what you've learned and your expertise for those people who are, again, considering an, a nonprofit or even considering uh, a partnership with a nonprofit if they are a traditional for-profit sort of how do they how do they include this philanthropic arm so we talked about um, your story as a woman and I think what we're seeing is more and more just uh, this generation of um, how do we make an impact how do we how do how does our work become something meaningful it's it's sort of taken over. Um, I, you know, I'm so grateful for, I think, the the millennials and I think even the Gen Zers who are coming in who just can't imagine doing work that doesn't have uh, some sort of meaning attached to it. Where I think my generation, there were outliers and there were definitely people thinking that way, but they seemed to be two separate entities. Mm -hmm. It was important to do good, so you you got involved, but it wasn't necessarily inherently a part of your your every day wasn't a part of your work. And we see more and more women in particular who are interested in launching these social impact ventures. If someone came to you and said, Redana, I'm looking to do something like this. I really want to do something meaningful. Do you think I should do what you are doing and start a nonprofit and, and, and kind of grow my organization from, from that entity? Or is there a for-profit social model that you might recommend? What would you say to that woman? Well, I th for me, uh, and my, my own personal story is that I had, my, my, just my soul is in this. I'm so um, dedicated to what I'm doing. I'm so driven. I'm, it's so right for me to be doing it that to start it on my own, I think it had to be that way. So if it's something that is not in your heart and your gut, that it's really only in your mind, then don't do mm. it. Don't do your own startup. Mm. But if it's but if it's somebody else's and you're joining a team, that's another story. But if you want to do sure. your own thing, I think you absolutely have to have your heart and your gut totally in it. And then and and of course the mind will come with that. But um, just mind driven, I think would would not be a healthy relationship, and it probably would not go far either. 
Yeah, it's a really important distinction. And then would you advise that person to to set up a nonprofit entity or to set up a for-profit entity and just, it can be a social enterprise. It doesn't have to be a nonprofit. Where would you, how would you direct someone who had that question? I, you know, that's a tricky one because I'm in this arena now uh, and learning as I go, by the way. Um, and I started to me nonprofit, given the partners and I'm going for pro bono for donations. If I was a, a for-profit, I, it just didn't sit right with me. It didn't feel that it would be right for me. But, uh, on the other hand, social enterprises that are for-profit that are still doing good are, um, probably much more financially viable and, um, hitting different ways. So, but I, I just can't see my Becky being a non-profit, but that uh, being a for-profit, but that doesn't mean that a different kind of service wouldn't do very well as a social enterprise, as a for-profit social enterprise that is doing good and, and, and but is not reliant on sure. external funding, self-generating, sure. self-sustaining on its funding. It seems like some of the for-profit models um, that are social impact models tend to be ones that a consumer at some level in that process can afford X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. They can afford the service, they can afford the product. But, and then rather than but, it filters down to a, a population that has a need that couldn't afford it. So again, I'll go back to the Tom's model. Somebody can afford those Tom's shoes at Nordstrom, mm -hmm. but the person who's impacted can't and isn't having to pay for it. So in that situation, it's a social impact pro uh, process or um, entity, but it can be a for-profit model because in the sort of sales funnel, there is somebody who can afford it and it doesn't diminish the brand. In fact, it helps that person to be a part of um, having sort of an impact themselves. There's a feel-good component to it. Mm -hmm. In your situation, you're directly going to the need that you're surpassing anybody who, you know, it's not a one for one. Uh, it's not buy a computer. And when you buy a computer, another computer is donated to a, a refugee child. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you have to really think about who are the, the people that play a role in the cycle of the product or the service that you're offering. And in that uh, process, is there someone who could afford it for whom uh, what you're selling would actually create an advantage or, again, a feel-good opportunity. So I don't see how, in your case, it could have been anything but a nonprofit. And I think it's, it would be an important thing for somebody to think about, okay, what is, what is the value I bring and to, who, to whom? Who am I bringing that value to? And can they afford said value? So that might be a... a something for people to, to better understand as they consider which kind of entity should I be. Um, is that, is that making sense to you? Yeah. You put that beautifully. Absolutely. Um, in fact, early on, I was having conversations with some, uh, advisors about just what you said. Could, could the, could some of these products, because people are, are liking the content that we're having there, even though it's just curated, in a ha not haphazard way, but it's not curriculum. It's not doesn't follow any particular curriculum, but it is um, nice products. And 
some people were suggesting, why don't you try having two audiences, exactly as you mentioned, mm. um, the, the buyers and otherwise. Um, but then, uh, well, our scale isn't that big at this point to consider that. Sure. And it's also, again, it feels with the, I would have to go through the negotiations of the providers because the providers of the content are giving it to us with the understanding that it's those sure. who, who cannot afford um, the educational content who are getting it. So it changes the equation then with, with, the, with the donating partners. Absolutely. And it's your urban planning detailed mind that probably helped you to understand, I need those partners. I need those in-kind opportunities. I need those partnerships. I, excuse me, those um, professional uh, services that can be donated. And there isn't anything here that makes any sort of for-profit entity sense. Um, so I, again, thank you for doing that with me because I think that kind of exercise and helping people listen to that process helps them to better understand uh, the distinction between the entities. Both are bringing in money and people shouldn't be confused by that. And nonprofits can pay for uh, for a, a team of employees. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's not the difference. The difference is what's being charged and what the company is gaining from that, or in your case, the organization. Mm -hmm. So it's an important distinction to make. Um, okay. So you're doing lots of things and it's clear from listening to you, there are lots of different hats that you're wearing. What are some of your daily habits and your go-to organizational, how do I stay focused? How do I stay efficient? What are some of the things that you do that you could sort of share your, share your secrets with us? Uh, well, probably an obvious that all of your list, list, listeners do already is um, the exercise component. Um, but it's, it's, crit huh. it's critical. The physical <laughs> don't assume, don't make assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But the, the physical exercise component yeah. uh, is critical for me, not just for shaking out the body, but for the mind. And I do the, the monotonous long duration things like go swimming. For, well, when in the UAE, I, I would swim in, in the sea over there and here, and otherwise I run and I go on long runs and it's just, um, meditative and I go through all kinds of scenarios in my mind uh, both um, the large dreamy reach scenarios as well as the the nitty-gritty all of these details that I'm that I'm obsessed with <laughs> uh, so there's that aspect to it which is I guess spiritual physical um, and then the um, uh, I always look at my calendar at uh, at night and in the morning to notes ahead for the day and for the week because uh, I need to be well prepared is that a paper calendar or is it no, on your phone? No, phone, my digital digital electronic. Device. Okay, yeah. okay. It used to be the attack of the stickies, but that was a long time yeah. ago. <laughs> the stickies <laughs> would crawl up my desk. <laughs> That's great. Um, so these routines, but I think there's also the the non-routine things that are critical for the routine stuff, but it would, getting myself out of the routine, which is... Um, attending events and going to lectures or meeting people who have nothing to do with my work. And mm -hmm. actually that often draws my biggest um, inspiration as well for the work that I am doing is to get myself out of this mode because I can really spiral into these details and sure. get stuck and not realize that I'm stuck in this rut and I need to shake myself out of that. So that's, that's an important part of the routine, maybe not daily, but weekly or monthly. Um, sure. But recognizing, I don't always recognize that I need to pull myself away. And actually, that's where the exercise is good as well, because uh, 
I live here in the Netherlands now, so running at six o'clock in the morning in winter is not ideal. <laughs> so I would go running in the middle <laughs> of the day and that is a good shakeup as well to just, just to, to do, get you to out reset. of your head. Yeah. You're so, you know, I, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, it seems so obvious, but it's absolutely true. I think of moments. I just had one last weekend. I was at a conference, something completely unrelated. It's an independent school conference. Um, and had to go, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something I just signed up for. Mm -hmm. And the speaker, uh, was a mathematician from Michigan who had, I don't know how many, uh, PhDs and was talking about, uh, diversity. And I sort of rolled my eyes. I was like, I, we've heard this talk. Every time I come to this conference, we talk about diversity among these schools, uh, what could he possibly have to say? And he's a mathematician, so this is going to be terribly boring. I was riveted. Um, he was able to, through math, come up with this equation for the what? It, why is diversity meaningful? Not just so that we pick every socioeconomic or every color of the rainbow. Literally, I mean, it was it, it was this. Um, how do we just fill in all the spaces versus how do we create? He kept talking about truth, that in math you come up with truth, mm -hmm. and how through this mathematical equation we could understand that diversity will ultimately get us to this truth of, you know, what is what is a value, what is important, what is going to move the needle. And it was fascinating. And I'm literally completely not thinking about my business, not thinking about, not thinking about anything except this. And the rest of the weekend I spent, in my mind, thinking about how what he said applied to so much of the work that we do and people that I work with do, and this th that we have to understand this diversity component from a, from a very practical uh, way of how, you know, and we, we, we see it now in politics, the importance of women being included and that voice. We see it obviously in entrepreneurship, like what do women bring to the table as we get invited mm -hmm. into um, you know, what are our thoughts? What are our, what are our ideas? What are, what do our creative endeavors kind of open up and create uh, opportunity for others to engage in? Um, and so I, to I, I absolutely think what you're saying is critical and myself just had that experience of getting out of my head, um, and out of my own way to do something very sort of unique actually ends up informing in a, in a fresh way, the work that I am doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, well, we might post that. He has a lecture. Oh, we might post that because it is sort of interesting. Um, okay, so you're running your nonprofit worlds as well as running miles and miles and miles to get your head clear, <laughs> and uh, you're spending a lot of your time working with these partners, um, making the actual trips to Lebanon. You know, you're wearing again a lot of hats. I assume that a lot of your work is sort of whether it's in the fundraising grant writing piece of it or in just keeping all of the in-kind and professional service people like abreast of what's going on and making sure that they're happy so they can continue to do that work. Mm -hmm. When are you able to kind of focus on the programmatic stuff? And you talked a little bit about, you know, um, when you're running, thinking of the the kind of big dreamy stuff. When are you able to do that um, if your time is so spent on kind of running the day-to-day? -day? 
Well, I make, as I mentioned, I make periodic trips to Lebanon to see, uh, to meet with partners, to see uh, what's going on on the ground. And that is hugely refreshing. I always, I always see something new when I'm there. I get a new perspective, a new, a new something, a new insight. And, th- and then that shapes this, the next period of what to focus on um, programmatically. Um, I probably should be, by the way, I probably should be spending more time on the fundraising and <laughs> on mm. those things. But this is where yeah. I've been fortunate and I've had uh, a, a couple of volunteers who are, one is a, pro- a professional fundraiser, um, a, fund- a grant writer, and another talented young woman who have offered, came forward and offered to help me with grant writing. So I've been able to um, to uh, designate that to to somebody else, or at least part of it, a big part of it, because each grant that you go after is just they're massive and they need a lot of work. Um, and to say fo- to focus on the the programmatic work again, it's utilizing the very very generous offers that I do get from people who want to help. And I hate to turn anybody away. So trying to parse off the things that I don't, that bog me down, that I don't want to deal with to others so that I can then focus on the programmatic stuff. Um, but I think, again, it's back to the shaking out of the routine part that is, that's critical for me because otherwise I can just spiral into a detail or spiral into a message to partners and become so obsessed with getting the wording right that uh, it's taking too much time uh, for the, sure. the bigger picture stuff. Sure. So just, I guess, don't stay comfortable. I, I just don't stay comfortable in, in a seat for too long or in any one mm. particular mode um, because then you'll, you'll, you'll get your blinders on and you, you won't see the wider horizon, I think. Oh, that's good. I like that. Don't stay comfortable. So let's say that while you don't, while you are not staying comfortable because you're committed to that, you do want to kind of put yourself in a situation where you can do more of what Rodena does really well and you can um, hand off some of the other work that the organization requires. You know, it has to get done. What are what as you think of that, and you think of having the extra funds to hire some of those people? What's the one hire you'd love to make um, so that you could be freed up to do some of the work that's really the only work? I mean, the work that you should be doing, only you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I just hired a communication, communications and marketing specialist, and uh, just last week, in fact. And that is going to be a huge relief for me because I hate yeah. I hate to deal with the the social media and all these communication things that have to happen and there's so much of it. Um, so I'm really really happy to be handing that off. But um, I would love as ASAP as soon as possible to get an <laughs> an executive director to really take over somebody who I can teach all of the things that I'm involved with because it's a whole operations now um, and hand off all of these um, these day-to-day operations so that I can be just doing the large strategic stuff and the partnerships and the connections and and really getting my head over the horizon and to be to be able to look over it all which sure. uh, so so that's an, uh, uh, that executive director role is really dealing with the day-to-day and understanding all the systems and the people that are, you know, part of that day-to-day, part of the operations, so that you're freed up to, uh, again, be more strategic, mm-hmm. be the visionary, look at other um, 
populations that need what you have to offer, look at other organizations that can contribute to what you're doing, that sort of thing? Exactly. I mean, I know what I'm doing now. I don't know what I could be yeah. doing. And yeah. Um, yeah. so what's happening today with Vecchi, I had foreseen most of it before. It was in the plan. But there are things which I can't see now. And I want to be able to start getting into that next next phase, then that, that next mode, um, which you're right. I can't do that right now because I'm just too bogged down with with the operations myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard and it's a hard transition. Um, both finding the right person for somebody that you trust, somebody that has a vision themselves for the organization without, um, but is able to take your lead because this is, this is after all your baby and something that, um, you want to see through, mm-hmm. uh, you, you have, the understanding of what's possible. And as you bring people along, it's like, they need to see what's possible too, but we're doing this, um, sort of the, the Thecky way. Mm-hmm. Say it one more time. Thecky. Thecky. Exactly. It's like, it's like I have to put my Middle Eastern <laughs> yeah. um, tongue into action. So we have a lot of listeners who are running for-profit companies and they're inspired by what you're saying, and they've been sort of dabbling with this idea of how do I tie my organization to something that's meaningful and, um, and you know, there's a give back component, something that perhaps they're doing it for marketing reasons. They want people to see that they kind of have a heart and their core values are reflected in whoever they partner with. Or perhaps it's something that they just feel is missing. Oh, I'm running this this entity, but it feels like I'm not really serving a greater purpose. And we hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend these for-profit entities go about considering really good options for who they should partner with? So if they're running a, you know, a restaurant, like just as an example, should they be, what should they be doing? Like, how would you, how would you advise that person? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say it, it, whatever, whoever you support should ethically be aligned with your values. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the values part of it. But for me, I'm, I guess I've always been one to go for the underdogs and the unknowns. And there are so many, um, great organizations out there with big names and and they already have the right backing i personally wouldn't support them because they've already gotten themselves to that stage where they've got the backing and they've got the the large names behind them and i think this is very much again this is really influenced by what i'm seeing in lebanon and the the organizations that i'm supporting that becky is supporting of these incredible people who are running um schools that started with absolutely nothing and are too busy to to be going after grants and things like that and may not have the linguistic ability. They can't express themselves in, Fre- in English because they're Arabic and French speakers or what have you, but they may not have mm. the right tools to be able to, uh, or time, and definitely not resources, to get the incredible work that they're doing out there. So I like to find these unknowns and those who don't are not getting the attention that they deserve um, due to the circumstances that they're in. Um, 
because they they are doing incredible work. I'm just going by what sure. I see. They're doing incredible work and it's critical work. And if they don't get the right funding, then they won't be able to continue doing doing that. But the contributions, and especially within the restaurant part, and you, in this, it relates to something which is very near and dear to my heart, which is food waste. There's always, there can be the in-kind contributions. I mentioned earlier the, the various support that I got from uh, designers, uh, lawyers, um, technology experts, marketing specialists. And it doesn't have to be, uh, you can contribute your um, resources in kind. That could be extremely valuable as well. There's a developer, in fact, in uh, I was doing a small consulting job in my in my, in my profession um, in urban planning recently in Abu Dhabi, and a developer was very interested in getting into their into CSR and seeing how they could help. And I was suggesting to them that of course, always financial uh, contributions are great, but you're dealing with the construction and development in an area that is going to need absolutely a rebuilding. So think mm -hmm. about how you can start training um, the young generation to have the right tools and think mm -hmm. through programs that can bring your own expertise and contribute that expertise back to the community. That's brilliant. And I think so important. Like not only is it something that's in line with your core value, but it's something that's in line with the work that you currently do. Mm -hmm. And it's a great extension of your brand, your company, your heart. Um, why, why wouldn't you find a way to, to do that? And then it translates to telling your story as a brand. Um, your, your, your consumer understands, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I'm in construction. And so we are partnering with this organization to train young um, contractors or, you know, mm -hmm would be people in the construction industry. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, you're just full of great advice this morning. <laughs> um, or the, the, our morning, your night. What time is it? Your time. It's 7 o'clock at night now. Okay. You're so great to meet with us in the evening. Thank oh, you. Oh, my pleasure. So we're not letting you off the hook this easily. We have our six questions that we always ask um, every guest. And just Whatever comes to mind, just give us your answer. Okay. So the first one is, do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? Definitely not nine to five. Absolutely flex. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and then vacation. Would you like to vacation in the mountains or on the beach? That's a tough one, but um, salty water always draws me. So I'm going to yeah, have to say beach. Good <laughs> okay. And then working from home or in office, what's your preference? Home. It's, it's actually, for me, it's not about home life balance. It's home life, homework integration. <laughs> I'm fully integrated. Yeah, the, <laughs> that's good. That's a good distinction. Um, and then do you like working with uh, your team or do you prefer to be alone? That's a tough one. Uh, definitely team for, for marathons, I'd say, and alone for sprints. Yeah. Oh, that's Oh, good. We haven't heard anybody describe it like that. That's that's great. And then I always say this is the hardest question. Do you prefer Thai or Mexican food? Oh, Thai. That's an easy one okay. for me. Not, it wasn't even, yeah, it was a no-brainer. I love it. And does it, do you like it spicy? Yes, I do actually. Okay, good, good. Well, when you come to California, I'll take you to a few places. Um, and then, you know, this uh, podcast is called Liberty Sessions. Our our brand is Liberty. Our URL is Liberty for her. We really like this word Liberty and this concept of Liberty. What does it mean for you to be liberated, Rutena? I guess the, the obvious one is not to have the, um, 
any concerns for the financial concerns, kids are well. But the, the deeper one, I think the more fundamental one is um, to define my truth and have, mm. the, have the courage to, to live it. Oh, that's good. That's an ongoing we don't We don't <laughs> often think of how, that it takes courage to live our truth. We think that somehow it's just, it's going to ooze from out of us, that it's something we don't, we, we don't have control of, of but I, off, I think you're right. I think living your truth takes a lot of courage. There's a lot of pressure and convention that can get in the way of that truth, I think. Yeah. Thank you for leaving us with that. That's a, that's a great bit of wisdom. And thank you for your time. Um, I, it feels, I feel very grown up having this international conversation. <laughs> very, you're making me feel like a grown up. Finally, at 51, I finally feel like a grown up. Um, and thanks for your time. And for all you listeners, we will have all the links that we mentioned uh, in the show notes. So you'll be able to check out uh, Rodana's whole interview with us, as well as some of the other things that she brought up, like her TED Talk, which is fantastic. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you so much, Nada. Really, such an honor to, to have had me here. Thank you. It, the pleasure and the honor is all ours. And Liberty listeners, thank you guys for um, tuning in. The pleasure and the honor is all ours with you as well. Take care. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Windham and music by Jordan Flower. 